Today we're going to continue our sermon series, which we started earlier this fall. And if you're with us for the first time, it kind of gets you up to speed. What we're doing, we're looking at the topic or the question of how does God feel about us? How does God feel about us? And, you know, the way we answer that question has a huge influence on how we feel about ourselves, how we view ourselves, how we view God and relate to him and how we even view others and relate to them. So we've been looking at different questions under this, this big heading of how does God feel about us? And over the past several weeks, we've looked at several questions, a couple of them being, is God angry at us? Is, is God indifferent to us? And today we're looking at the topic or the question of, is God disgusted with us? Now, we all know the feeling of disgust, don't we? It's, uh, maybe it's that we, we come across something that uh, is really gross or stinky or or, or whatever, slimy, and we kind of have this visceral reaction where we kind of pull back and kind of, ooh, you know, like, like maybe watching something on Fear Factor, you know, when you see them, they have to eat something or they have to climb through something that's sticky and gross and smelly, and we kind of, oh boy, we're kind of disgusted, turned off by that. And so we're, we're looking at the question of, is God turned off or disgusted with us when we, when we sin, when we do something really nasty, when we do something disgusting, a word or deed, or thought. How does God feel about us? Is he, is he disgusted with us? Because we can tend to project our feelings and our reactions onto God. Today we're going to be looking at that question. And as we're doing so, we're going to use Psalm 139 as kind of our home base. Psalm 139 is one of my favorite psalms, probably one of my top two or three psalms for me personally. A beautiful psalm which helps us get to, this, to the answer of how does God feel about us? And during the course of the psalm, we'll be pulling out five notes or five truths that help us to answer that question about who God is, how he feels about us, and how we are to respond to him. Now, a little bit about Psalm 139. Of course, we know it was written by, by King David, and we often think of King David as just that, King David, or the shepherd boy, or the guy who defeated Goliath. Um, but King David was also a skilled musician. Uh, we know from the scripture when he was in the fields, you know, as a shepherd, he, he, would have, he would have sung songs, I'm sure, to God. He would have been a man of prayer even at that early age. And then when King Saul is feeling disturbed and there's this bad mood of spirit upon him, who does he call? He calls David to come and, and to sing and to play for him, to comfort him, and, and, and that happens. So King David wrote this psalm, and, and out of it we're going to find, pull those five notes or truths that will help us in our walk with Jesus Christ. But before we do so, I'm going to start with our opening prayer. And then we're going to jump right in together. Father, we come before you today and we thank you for we thank you for your great love and we thank you for your word and how rich it is and how wonderful and, it, and it's true and it's relevant uh, and it's helpful. And Lord, we come before you and we thank you for Psalm 139. And Lord, we pray now that as we look at it together, that your spirit would bring it to bear in our lives, uh, that your word would accomplish the purpose for which you have sent it for us as individuals. And for us as a church, we ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. My uh, wife, Nancy, and I have been married for over 23 years, almost 23 and a half, something like that. And, and um, it's been a great joy. And, and one of the things that, you, that I've noticed about marriage is it's very humbling at times because this person knows you inside and out better than anybody else. Uh, and it's a wonderful thing. Uh, and it, it's a great thing to experience. For instance, Nancy knows my sense of humor, doesn't always appreciate it. Um, she knows my moods, which are basically one, good, you know, um, <laughs> just kidding. 
She knows my mood, I should say. Uh, she knows my, my dreams and my struggles. She knows kind of my faults, my frailties. She understands me better than anybody else. But as anyone knows who has been in a relationship for a long time, we can never, ever completely know completely and understand completely another person. Nancy will never quite plumb the depths of Doug. And I'll never completely understand the nuances of Nancy. Did you see what I did there? Yeah, yeah that was kind of cool. Um, anyway, in our marriage, occasionally, oh, about every five or six years, we'll have a misunderstanding. No, I'm just, just kidding. I'm just being facetious there. Uh, and, and, you know, she'll take something I said the wrong way, or I'll take something she said the wrong way, and we'll feel misunderstood. We get frustrated because nobody likes to be misunderstood. We hate that. It's a, we just have this pet peeve about being taken the wrong way. But think about it for a minute. If, if you could be in a relationship where you were never, ever misunderstood, what would that look like? I want you to think about that. You think you'd like it? You know, it's, it's, it's not unusual to hear somebody complain, nobody really gets me, nobody understands me, you don't get me. And, and it's true, isn't it, to a certain degree? Uh, there's always a, a ceiling or, or a basement, however you want to look at it, that we have a hard time getting past or through in relationships with most people. It's just hard to get to the, the very core of a person at times. And so when somebody, and we find this is true, generally a sort of a shallowness in a lot of our relationships, right? Uh, it's socially acceptable when somebody asks you, how are you doing? What do we say? I'm okay. I'm, I'm fine. Doing all right. Can't complain. But inside we might be thinking, kids are driving me crazy. I want to strangle my spouse. Um, I can't take this anymore. I'm depressed. I'm alone. I'm worried. I'm afraid. But we just say, I'm okay, I'm fine. We, like, we think we'd like to have somebody who understands us fully, but are we, are we sure about that? Can you imagine someone who knows everything you do, everything you think, everything you've ever done? Take a look at verse 1. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Now, three times in these first few verses, David uses the Hebrew word for know, K-N-O-W, which is used to convey a deep, intimate, personal knowledge and experience of a person. And that brings us to our, our first note of this Psalm 139, which is because God is all-knowing, we are completely and we are totally understood. Because God is all-knowing, we are completely understood. God never, ever misunderstands us. We don't have to kind of explain, oh, that's what I meant, that's what I thought, that's what I was, that's, this is who I am. God knows. There is never any under, misunderstanding between us and God. He knows us completely and totally. Every thought, every action, every single word. And the theological term for this is the term omniscience, which means all-knowing or all-seeing. It means that for better or for worse, during the hyped or the humdrum, during the virtuous times or the vices, we are under divine watch. In the words of Bette Miller's song from about 20 or so years ago, God is watching us. Now this can be a source of fear or anxiety, or this can be a source of faith and assurance. Depending upon your view of God, depending how you think he feels about us as a basic stance towards us and human nature and us as believers and, and about the nature of your relationship with him. Now, now, no doubt God inspired David 
to compose these, these verses in Psalm 139. And there's probably a couple of reasons. One is to motivate us to live in a way which pleases him because we will have to give an account for every word, deed, and thought. But also, I believe, part of God's intention here was his desire is that, is, is that we would know that, that this whole idea of him knowing us and, and understanding us would be a source of faith, a, faith, a source of security, and a faith of assurance. And knowing that he knows the totally all the bad and all the good about us, and yet he still desires to, to journey through life with us, to have this relationship with us. It means, ultimately, that we have somebody, someone, to whom we can pour out our hearts and we will never, ever be misunderstood. You see, God fulfills every essential need that we have as human beings. All human beings long to be known. We, we need to be known at some level. And sure, we duck and we hide and we pretend and we avoid. We, we misrepresent, we cover up. But deep down, we want to be known and we want to be understood. And because God is omniscient, all-knowing, that need can be fulfilled. But it's only half of the equation. For the need to be completely fulfilled, we need to know the one who knows us. We must follow the example of David and the saints through the centuries and engage the Lord through prayer, through the word, and through personal faith in him, through personal faith in Jesus Christ. Take a look now at verse 5. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Maybe you've heard the story about the, the line of students in a cafeteria, college students in a cafeteria at a Christian college. Um, at the head of the, the table was a large pile of apples, and the cook put a sign there saying, Take only one, God is watching. At the other end of the table, there was a, a large pile of chocolate chip cookies, and a clever student put a note there that said, Take all you want. God is watching the apples. <laughs> Think about that. Okay. Kind of delayed reaction for some of you, but okay. The second part of, of, of David's psalm deals with another theological term and idea, which is God's omnipresence. A simple definition of omnipresence is God is present everywhere all the time. God is present everywhere. All the time. God can be at one end of the table watching the apples and be at the other end of the table watching the cookies all at the same time. He is everywhere present all the time. Paul Little stated that, that God is not a substance spread out in a thin layer over all the earth. All of him is in Chicago, in Calcutta, in Cairo, and in Caracas at once and the same time. Now, someone else has said that God's presence is like the air we breathe. Most of the time we aren't even aware of it. Yet we depend upon it for our very survival, our existence. And likewise, God's presence is all around us. And if it were withdrawn from our world and from our lives, we would not be able to survive. For centuries, the Christians have begun their day by reciting St. Patrick's Prayer. Maybe you're familiar with it. Christ be with me, Christ within me. Christ behind me, Christ before me. Christ beside me, Christ beneath me. Christ above me, Christ in every quiet Christ in every danger, Christ in every heart I meet, Christ in every stranger. I think St. Patrick gripped 
this understanding of, of Psalm 139. And you can imagine King David, before he penned this, maybe staying up on a high peak outside of Jerusalem, uh, staring off to the south. And, and he looks up, staring off to the east, and he, and he sees up in the, in the heavens, uh, the dawn is coming, and the, and the bright morning sky, and he says, if I ascend into the heavens, God, you're there. And then maybe he looked down and saw the, 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 the Dead Sea, and we know that's the lowest point on earth, elevation-wise. And he looked down and he said, if I descend even to the depths, you are there. And then perhaps he, he watched the sun rise over the Jordanian mountains in the east, and he, and he said, if I rise and take the wings of the dawn, you're there, God. And then maybe he turned and faced the Mediterranean Sea, stretching out infinitely to the west, with a place where the sun sets, and he said, if I go there, even there your presence is with me. Even there, your right hand holds me, holds me fast. God is present everywhere, all the time. Look at verse 11 and and verse 12. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. You know, I can remember playing hide-and-seek with each of my three children when they were toddlers. And uh, As a parent, I'm sure many of you had the same experience where you play hide-and-seek with them and, and they're at a certain age when they, they close their eyes and put their hands over their face, they think because they can't see you that you can't see them. You know, It's, 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 it's dark to them, but it's, but it's light to us. They, they can't see you, and so therefore they doubt your presence in the room. But you're there all the time. And on a much grander and more profound scale uh, in application, that's the way it is with God. At times we feel uh, that we, or think that he's not there because we can't see him. We can't see him at work in our life or in the world or whatever, and, and we doubt his presence. But God is everywhere present all the time. In the early days of space travel, one of the Russian cosmonauts, of course, back then, the official policy of, of, of the Soviet Union was atheism. And one of the Russian cosmonauts returned from orbiting the Earth, and, and he reported that, that when he was up in the capsule, he looked out the, the window and looked for God and had seen God nowhere. To which somebody replied, if he had taken off his spacesuit for one second, he would have seen God very quickly. <laughs> kind of sick humor, I know. Uh, Mark told me to say that, so... <laughs> Remember earlier we mentioned Bette Miller's song? Remember how it goes? God is watching us. God is watching us. God is watching us from a distance. The Bible tells us that God is watching us. She's got that right. But it is not from a distance. God isn't a cosmic clockmaker who builds a clock, who builds the world and the universe, and puts it out there, winds it up, and then watches it and watches us from a distance. God is omnipresent everywhere all the time. And what difference does that make for us? The second note is because God is everywhere, all the time. We are never, ever alone. God is is near. He is intimately involved in this world, and nothing we do will cause him to leave. And because he's always there, he's always available for us. 365, 24-7. Probably the greatest promise in the Bible is found in the second half of Hebrews 13.5. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. And God is especially close when we go through tough times. Some of you experience this truth from Psalm 34:18. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. 
I found that to be true. God's presence should bring us up to a place of faith and to a place of trust and a place of comfort. Isaiah 41.10, So do not fear, for I am with you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And that means we don't have to remain discouraged or afraid or worried because God promises to come close to, him, to, uh, to us when we draw near to him. James 4.8, come near to God and he will come near to you. And so remember, when, wherever God is calling you to go, and whenever he's calling you to go, and, where, and whatever he's asking you to do when you get there, remember this, he is already there before you get there. And he's going with you on the journey, on the way. Now verse 13. For you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works, referring to creation, including us, your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. The third note that we come to in David's song is because God is our creator, we are precious to him. You know, all of us at one point or other in our life, some of us for a good chunk of our life, struggle sometimes with self-esteem or self-worth because our world assigns value to people proportionate upon what they can do, how much they earn, what they look like, what groups they belong to. And that makes it terribly difficult for many of us to feel good about our self-worth. But this psalm tells us that we must not listen to that world's song. Instead, we are to listen to these verses. Now, your Bible may include a footnote about verse 17 where it says, How precious to me are your thoughts, God? Because there's another way to translate the Hebrew. That translation reads, How precious about me, concerning me, regarding me, are your thoughts, O God? Isn't that incredible to think about? God's thoughts about you, about me, about his children are, are precious and are more than all the grains of sand in this world. In his book, The Wisdom of Tenderness, Brendan Manning tells the following story. Several years ago, Edward Farrell of Detroit uh, took a two-week vacation to Ireland to celebrate his favorite uncle's 80th birthday. And on the morning of the great day, Ed and his uncle got up before dawn. They dressed in silence and they walked along the shores of, of Lake Killarney. And just as the sun rose, his uncle turned and stared straight at the sun. And Ed stood beside him for 20 minutes with not a single word exchanged. And then the elderly uncle began to skip along the shore, a radiant smile on his face. After catching up with him, Ed commented, Uncle Seamus, you, you look very happy. Do you want to tell me why? Yes, lad, the old man said, tears washing down his face. Yes, you see, the father is fond of me. Ah, me father in heaven is so very fond of me. Our Heavenly Father is, is very, very fond of his children. And he thinks the world of, his, of us. He, he created the world for us. And because we are created by God, to him we are of immeasurable value. Now, the Lord of the Rings trilogy has kind of undergone a renaissance, kind of a, uh, in, in favor. A lot of people are starting to read the books more because the movies have come out. And, 
If you know the stories, you know that Gollum is a, it's kind of a cent, one of the central figures. He's a tragic and, and sad figure. And he's consumed by a desire to, to, to possess this golden ring, which is the center object of the books. And, and Gollum endures hardship and danger and, and his quest for this ring. And, and eventually his obsession with the ring costs him his very identity. He changes and becomes something that we don't even recognize. And then eventually it costs him his life. And Gollum is so blinded with desire for the ring that he refers to it simply as my precious. Now, certainly God is not a tragic, pathetic figure, and his quest for a relationship with us is not neurotic. But he fiercely, passionately thinks of us as his precious. In fact, we are virtually priceless to God. Now, to check that, that's not quite right. Actually, we do come with a great price. He sent his son to die for our sins. And so the gift of Jesus Christ for our life is something that we should never, ever take for granted. And this by itself should cause us to to have pause when we doubt our value in God's eyes. And even more so, it should cause us to, to, to shame when we doubt the value of God's people. We are the children of God. We are wonderfully and fearfully made in God's image. Loved and known before we were even born, and God thinks we're precious. Now, the next note in this psalm is, is rather dissonant. It seems like it's a wrong note in David's song. It doesn't seem to fit. Listen to verse 19. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I, do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Now, why after these three beautiful notes and truths about God and his feelings towards us and who he is, his omnipresence and his, and his omniscience and all those things, why is this note, these verses inserted here? Well, I think because of this, probably the toughest single question that we can sometimes face as Christians, especially in relation with those not in the faith, is this whole idea of, of why do the wicked flourish and why do the good sometimes struggle and suffer and why doesn't God do something about it? Okay, so it's time for another theological term, theodicy. And basically, theodicy is, expresses the dilemma we face regarding the problem of evil. If God is good, if God is all-powerful, then why don't we see more justice in this world? Why do bad things happen to good people, and why do good things happen to bad people? Now, I'm, not certainly, I'm certainly not going to be able to give a comprehensive, totally satisfactory answer this morning. First, because there's not enough time. Second, although there's much biblical and theological content, which I think can get us to a place of, of faith and trust in God regarding this, there's still, when the rubber hits the road, when it happens to us, it, it sometimes doesn't really resonate with our hearts. And finally, Christians have been struggling with this issue for centuries, and if they haven't resolved it, I'm probably not going to resolve it here in a couple of minutes. Because in, see, in response to this question, there are problems no matter which way you approach it, Right? If you assert that God is all-powerful and, and that he's good and loving, then when looking at evil, you can jump to the, some people will jump to the assumption that since God can do something about it, but he doesn't, then he must be uncaring, impassive, or even cruel. But if you take the point of view that God can't be involved in everything, then God comes across as, in, as impotent or powerless or, or weak. And even when we bring free will and the nature of living in a fallen world into the equation... And the fact that God created us with the ability to respond to him, either in obedience and love or rebellion, 
Sometimes our answers don't quite comfort us that much when we're going through it or experiencing it. So why does God inspire David to include these verses? Well, in fact, if you look at many of the Psalms and and other parts of Scripture, questions concerning God and justice abound. And I believe the reason this dissonant note is included is simply because God wants an authentic, heartfelt relationship and conversation with us. He wants us to bring our our questions, our, our bewilderment about the way things work in this world to him. And in the process, come to a place, as we wrestle through it, come to a place of trust in him. And the fourth note is simply, because God is trustworthy, we are to leave these matters of justice to him. Finally, the fifth and last note is tied closely to the fourth note. And although it doesn't bring complete resolution to this question of of justice, it does bring resolution to the 139th Psalm. Take a look at verse 23. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And so the fifth note simply, again, is because God is God, we are to be led by him. The prophet Jeremiah tells us that the heart cannot be trusted, that it's devious and it leads to self-deception. Isn't that true? So often we'll, we'll ask ourselves, why did I do that? Why did I say such a thing? Oh, how can I have such thoughts about that person? You see, often we don't even know ourselves that well and we don't understand why we do what we do and sometimes we don't even know when we've done something wrong. Only God truly knows us, and he does so way better than we know ourselves. And David's last note in Psalm 139 acknowledges this. He asks God to examine his heart, to show him where he's fallen short in word or deed or thought. And he asks the Lord to lead him in a journey of faith, both in his inner life and his outer life. William Beebe wrote the following story. At Sagamore Hill, Theodore Roosevelt and I used to play a little game together. After an evening of talk, we would go out on the lawn and search the skies until we found a faint spot of light, mist, beyond the lower left-hand corner of the great square of Pegasus. And then one of us would recite, That is the spiral galaxy in Andromeda. It is as large as our Milky Way. It is one of a hundred million galaxies. It consists of one billion suns, each larger than our sun. Then Roosevelt would grin and say, Now I think we're small enough. Let's go to bed. That's perspective. That's perspective about who God is and who we are and our place in the scheme of things. And this Psalm, Psalm 139, should give us that perspective. When we realize that God is all-knowing and that he's all-seeing and knows us and understands us completely and he still accepts us, we should be humbled. And when we understand that God is everywhere all the time and will never, ever leave us, we should be encouraged. And when we consider that God has has cherishes us and has created us for a love relationship with him, we should be thankful. And when we comprehend that God invites our questions and our doubts, we should be challenged to bring those issues of injustice to him, trusting him with both the questions and the answers. Is, is God disgusted with us? How does he feel about us? He is not disgusted with us. To the contrary, Psalm 139 tells us that he knows us completely, that he's everywhere with us all the time, that we're precious to him. God delights in his people. Let's pray.
Father, we come to your table in just a moment. And Lord, we, um, we know that because you're omnipresent, that you're here right now. That you're here. And, and Lord, we know because you're omniscient that you know everything about us. The things we've done wrong, the things we've done right, the things we're not even aware we've done wrong. Uh, and Lord, we know because, um, because you love us that we don't have to come to the table with fear. We don't have to wonder how you feel about us. We know, Lord, that because of Jesus Christ, we can have a relationship with you, that you offer us grace and mercy, that your stance toward us is not one of indifference or anger or disgust, but rather of love, of involvement, of acceptance, of grace and of mercy. So, Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you, Lord, for who you are. As we come to the table, as we take of the elements, may we be aware of your presence in a very powerful way through your spirit. May we be drawn closer to you. We ask this through your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.